Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Garo Arman, founder, chairman, and CEO of Agenis. Thanks for joining us today, Garo. Thank you very much, Rahul. Happy to be here. Wonderful. So, Garo, to, to kick us off, if you could please walk us through the arc of your career, all that you've seen, and how you got to where you are today. Well, I'm a scientist by training. I came to the U.S. at the age of 17 without having spoken a word of English. By some chance and series of events, I ended up on Wall Street after I got my PhD in physical chemistry. And then on Wall Street, I specialized in specialty pharmaceutical companies as well as biotech, because at that time, biotech was coming of age. And in the early 90s, I was attending a conference in Washington, D.C. about cancer immunology, cancer vaccines at the time. So coming back from that conference, I was convinced that cancer could only be cured with the use of immunological techniques. And by some chance, I was introduced to a company or technology, I should say, there was no company at the time, from Mount Sinai. It was an individualized cancer vaccine technology. So I did due diligence for about nine months, and I took my time because I had no real plans to start a company. But the idea and the technology was so compelling that we started a company. And at that time, it was called Antigenics. And the name was introduced to us by the legendary Joshua Lederberg, the Nobel laureate from Rockefeller University. And some years later, we changed the name because it wasn't descriptive of all immunological processes. And so we changed the name to Agenis. And Agenis now is positioned as a cancer immunology company, but with capabilities that could extend beyond cancer. Garrett, talk to us a little bit about the founding story behind Agenis and how it came to be. The founding story behind Agenis is at the expense of peppering this with some personal stories. My grandmother turned out to be an organic immunologist without having gone to any school. I was the first grandchild. And of course, at that time, when you're the first grandchild, you are regarded at a very high place by your grandparents. And so whenever I got sick with a cold or the flu or something, she'd come to our apartment with sheets of cut and she would heat those sheets of cotton on the ceramic stove and put them around my armpits for hours. Just she would rotate it for hours. And I wonder what this lady is doing. And the truth was that she was activating my lymph nodes to be able to fight the disease better. Hmm. So that's a very, very old memory that persisted with me. But my mother died of cancer at the age of 47 in 1972. And at that time, I was desperate to come up with some experimental medicines. And we didn't even have chemotherapy at that time for patients. And so I brought her to the U.S. shortly after I arrived here for some experimental medicines. Unfortunately, she died after two months or so. 
And then, you know, I had some experiences with a dear childhood friend of mine, my cousin, three-year-old beautiful child of a dear friend of mine. And so when all of these things are happening, and in the meantime, you're going on a journey to be able to do something about it, something sustainable. See, for the last up to years, we've tried to deal with cancer in a suboptimal way, using all kinds of medicines. And of course, there has been some benefit, but relative to the effort put into it, that benefit is really minuscule. And But 10 years ago, when the immuno-oncology revolution started, we started seeing a very tiny slice of specific cancers, like melanoma, for example, being cured. Never happened before. If you had stage four melanoma, you were doomed to die. But with the advent of Yervoy, that small slice of stage four melanoma patients were cured. And of course, at that time, it didn't generate all that much interest because the market was small. And But ask that of the patients who are alive today who would have been dead if it hadn't been for this invention. And so since then, of course, we've had a revolution of explosion in the treatment of cancer patients with immuno-oncology. But unfortunately, we haven't been able to expand that tiny slice of a single indication in the last 10 years, even with PD-1s. Great help for patients, no question about it, but we haven't fundamentally licked the issue of curing cancer on a broader basis. Now, of course, what's exciting about what we're doing today with Agenis is that we believe we have the next revolution at hand in the form of a product called Botensilumab, which is not just a checkpoint anybody, but it does other things beyond binding to a checkpoint receptor. And with Botensilumab, early indications suggest that we are broadening the number of cancers that would have not responded to immunotherapy or other drugs. And we are also deepening the potential responses and potential cures. And so that's exciting. But the question becomes, is it one product that's going to do this? And the answer is no, it's not one product. It's going to be an army of weapons to obviously beat cancer on a much broader basis. And the thing that's unique about our company is that we've worked very hard over the last seven years or so and delivered on this a whole broad army of weapons. And we can talk about the specifics, of course, but it's really the criticality of being able to battle with cancer with a tug of war between the disease and the immune system. And that's where we are today, Mm. tilting that tug of war in favor of the immune system. Yeah. And let's just double click on that, Garo. Based on your work at Agenis, I'd love to hear your perspective on immunology and immunotherapy and the immunotherapy landscape and the opportunities that it provides compared to other approaches. Cancer is a pretty challenging disease. We used to think of, for example, many years ago, that if somebody had breast cancer or lung cancer or prostate cancer, that it was the same disease in every single person. And so the notion that a drug would be able to cure cancer was flawed from the start. Now, what happened was, of course, as I said, cancer is a tug of war between the disease 
or battling cancer is a tug of war between the disease, cancer, and the immune system. And if you can, there are two ways of, or three ways of tilting that in your favor. One is you can reduce the cancer itself, and certainly something like chemotherapy does that. And if the immune system is competent enough to be able to battle that reduced cancer and win, it happens naturally. So in some patients, for example, that chemotherapy, they may be cured, but it comes in with all the toxicities and perhaps long-lasting toxicities of some of these drugs. So the real challenge for us is with present-day drugs or the previous-day drugs, chemotherapy, radiation, target therapy, and so on and so forth, we're doing something to reduce the burden of the disease and or we're making the disease a little bit more visible to the immune system indirectly, indirectly. So when you do that, the relatively competent immune system that is in that patient may be able to battle and win without any immunological intervention. But as we know, in most cancer patients, particularly in stage four disease, this doesn't happen. And so we need additional help to bolster the immune system to win that battle or under the defenses of the cancer that block the immune system from destroying it. So it's two-pronged strategies. And with, for example, with antibodies, checkpoint antibodies, it accomplishes both. It accomplishes both the job of unmasking the cancer so it doesn't protect itself from the immune system and also bolster the immune capacity to be able to kill the target. Great. And Garo, I'm curious, over the next 10 to 15 years or so, what's exciting you the most about the immunotherapy space? Of course, I'm very excited about what we're doing. (laughs) Because what we're doing is really, you know, you have a multi-component immunological process. So you've got, as I said, you have a cancer cell trying to hide itself from the immune system. So we've done a pretty decent job of being able to undo that. But all of these things, Rahul, come at a cost. If you don't balance that process properly, you can indulge in overactivity of the immune system that causes self-harm. You can have, for example, self-tissue harm. In targeting some of the checkpoint receptors like CTLA-4, you can cause colitis or you can cause other autoimmune diseases. So it's a very fine balance. And the challenge is this is different from person to person. And it's different from cancer to cancer. So being able to have agents that can help you modulate that process smartly is very helpful. Now, the second step is, let's say that you win the initial battle, okay? But you haven't won the war yet. In order to be able to win the war, you have to have the ability of generating immune cells that are in a high state of alert. And that means that What if, for example, some residual cancer cells remain and they poke their head out after the initial battle is over? So do you have, for example, the memory response of the immune system ready to go? And as soon as they poke their head, it will destroy the residual disease. And then you have these offsetting elements of the immune system. For example, there are regulatory T cells. Regulatory T cells are cells that try to minimize the damage. It's a regulatory process that, for example, if the immune system is overactivated, the regulatory T cells get in the way of allowing that overactive immune system from causing damage. But sometimes these regulatory T cells assume a mind of their own. 
and they do too much of regulation and they inhibit the ability of the immune system to kill the cancer. So we have agents that can address each one of these elements. And then we have cell therapies with our Mink Therapeutics subsidiary. And cell therapy is also very interesting. The innate immune system is also very interesting. It's almost like envisioning, for example, a military system. And I'm not a violent person, but imagine it in the context of a military system, because you can't win the war with just the Marines or the Navy and the Air Force and the Army and Special Forces. You need all of these elements to be able to be deployed at the right time. And this is what's required with the immune system and, and companies that have thought one trick pony is the way to go about it, I think will not deliver on the final or the appropriate mandate of curing cancer. We can make important strides in treating cancer, but cures are the holy grail. And that's what we need to look for. Great. Thanks for sharing that perspective, Garo. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the current environment in biotech. You know, We're coming off of some great years, both the public and private markets from a financing perspective, but there's certainly correction underway across all sectors right now. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's going on in biotech, perhaps you know, some of the silver linings of what's going on. It seems like you've been through corrections in the past, so we'd love to hear from you how you've also navigated these. So there are two separate silos of topics here. One is what you mentioned, Rahul, which is really a reality beyond biotech. And I'll tell you what I mean by it. And the second piece of it, is more specific to biotech. What is it going to really take to be successful in the future? Is it driven by an exit strategy to make a lot of money? Or is it driven by delivering on the mandate of making profound differences with diseases? So take cancer, for example, that's our sweet spot. How do we cure patients? In order to cure patients, we need to innovate and we cannot stop innovating. The standard model in the pharmaceutical and the healthcare business has been, you know, you come up with a product and you introduce the product into the market and you have a 15, 20 year monopoly with that product. And what that product does versus the next product that's going to be launched isn't very different. So we're dealing with incremental changes. And those incremental changes can only be demonstrated with very fancy footwork with statistical analyses of trials that are going to meet the regulatory standards of today. And so then you need a huge infrastructure to do this with, a regulatory and clinical infrastructure. And then you need a huge commercial infrastructure to convince doctors that having this much improvement is worth prescribing the drug. I think this is not going to be the way of the future, in my opinion. I think that the future is going to be driven by innovation and rapid innovation, as well as containing costs of medicines. That's what's going to drive the future. So if we don't innovate rapidly in order to be able to deliver on the mandate of curing diseases or allowing patients to have a very appropriately high quality of life while they have the disease, but it doesn't cause harm to them. 
to keep a disease static. TNF inhibitors, for example, have done a pretty good job of containing arthritis in patients who are severely affected by arthritis. Not a perfect solution, but it's certainly a much better solution than we're facing with cancer so far today. Okay, that's the future. And how do we do this? Well, the current pharmaceutical model isn't going to deliver this because, as I said, the current pharmaceutical model is huge infrastructures to be able to demonstrate minuscule improvements, huge infrastructures to demonstrate minuscule differences. So that's one issue. Now, if I may, to indulge in the previous, the first question that you asked, what's unique about biotech and what has driven biotech in the last 20, 25 years? Well, it's beyond biotech. Really, if you look at the world at large, I'd say mostly the Western world, it's been driven by financial greed. That's the fact. And the fact is, financial greed drives in people's minds, how do I make a quick buck tomorrow or as soon as possible, not for the long haul? And that has driven entrepreneurs, that has driven Wall Street, that has driven venture capitalists, that has even driven companies because most companies have CEOs that have a tenure of about six to eight years max. So they're not thinking long term. Now, this in contrast to the way Chinese implemented their strategy. There's a wonderful book that we can learn lessons from called The 100-Year Marathon. It's about Chairman Mao's strategy from the 1940s to teach the West because the West humiliated him. And he wanted to teach the West about the ability of the Chinese people and the China country. And he embarked on a 100-year plan to do this. Imagine a man who knows he's not going to be around 100 years from then, but he wanted to embark on this 100-year plan. Can you imagine trying to convince the West to do something like this? It's impossible. And I'm not suggesting that we need to be on a 100-year plan for biotech. That's not what I'm suggesting. But I think the greed of trying to deliver something tomorrow or as soon as possible, and having companies formed so that you can become a serial entrepreneur and have an exit strategy so you can go on to your next gig, I think that really is something that's harming us today, and it needs to change. So I'm a believer in the innovation, the work ethics, the value system of Elon Musk. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm just an independent-minded person, but I think my experience has taught me what is right and wrong. And without hard work and some longer-term planning, I don't think you're going to be able to battle what we need to battle today, which in our case is cancer. And Garam, I'm curious in terms of approaching things similar to Elon Musk, what are some of those core similarities that you share? I think, you know, of course, Elon Musk is a much smarter man than I am. And he's been a brilliant innovator, a brilliant innovator. One of the things that we need to be cognizant of is if conventional ways of doing things is breathing mediocrity, we need to break that convention. You know, when Elon Musk decided to go about his business model, he didn't take a American-made car or a Japanese-made car and take it apart and try to improve on that model. He built something from scratch. For example, an average Tesla car has about 
a hundred or so moving parts as compared to a thousand plus moving parts in a conventional car. Imagine all the advantages that come with it. But that's just a tiny piece of what we're talking about here in terms of innovation. He then brought in all of the algorithms and the software. And, you know, for example, if you want to have an improvement on your Tesla that you thought about, within a few days or a week, that improvement already has been engineered by brilliant software engineers of Tesla, and you get an update that you can install on your car immediately. So that's why I gave the example that typically you launch a product, and that product gives you a 15, 20-year monopoly. That's shameful, I think, because that impedes innovation. Whereas, for example, I give the example to my team members. If Apple had stopped innovating when iPhone 4 was introduced and said, we're the king of the hill right now, we can kill research and just capitalize on our iPhone 4 because it's the best-selling product and the best of breed, where would Apple be today? Yeah. Okay. Where would it be today? So that's why I think the speed and the magnitude of innovation is going to be critical for our future. Certainly agree. And Gary, I'm curious, given the current environment, how have you adapted your approach in terms of hiring, how you get work done, leveraging external providers and, and so on? This is a beautiful question, Rahul, because many years ago, as we got into the field of a checkpoint anybody's, we didn't venture in anybody's prior to 2014. We made a very critical acquisition of a company. It was a private company called For Anybody, which was a result of a spin out from Roche Research Institute in Basel, Switzerland. We acquired that company and that gave us the basis for creating anybody's. And so when I wanted to get the first experience with manufacturing clinical grade antibodies, I dealt with a couple of CDMOs out there. And so we made a strategic decision immediately to get into our own manufacturing operations. And so we bought the Zoma manufacturing facility in California for a very modest sum, but it wasn't the manufacturing facility that we bought that really interested me. It was the team that came with it. It was a stellar team with many years of experience and many, many years of fantastic deliverables. So when we acquired this facility, we reduced our dependency on outside CDMOs. And most recently, we just finished a soup to nuts commercial manufacturing facility about a mile down the road from our original acquisition in Emeryville, California. And that will give us the flexibility to make product from soup to nuts. I mean, all the way product with vialing and labeling and storage facilities and so on. So to get back to your question, we had a similar experience with CROs. So my philosophy is if we're going to succeed, of course, you cannot completely reduce your dependency to third parties, but you need to be as self-sufficient as possible. So today we have our own manufacturing. We have started assembling our own CRO teams. We made two acquisitions. And yes, we will use high-quality third-party providers when needed, 
But I think the plan is to be as self-sufficient as possible. And in this world of, by the way, all kinds of supply chain disruptions and so on and so forth, you need to really be in control of things. And to complement what we're doing, for example, we didn't talk about this. In the last 10 years, if you look at our trajectory in the last 10 years, we have raised $900 million from corporate collaborations and royalty monetization. And I'm not talking about $900 million worth of bio dollars. I'm talking about $900 million that has come into our pockets in the last 10 years. And we continue to perform in that regard, by the way. So right now, we're burning cash. and But most of the cash that we burn in the last 10 years has come from our creative transactions. And we're going to continue to do that, of course. And how do we go about the future? Well, you've got to be very efficient very innovative, you've got to be self-sufficient, and you've got to make sure that you have alternate means of cash acquisition, not just being dependent on third-party investment banking units or typical investors. Yeah, appreciate that advice, Garo. You've certainly seen a lot being at the helm of Agenis for over two decades. So thanks for sharing those insights. If I could ask you to reflect and take a step back for a minute. Given all that you've seen and all the experiences that you've had, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know? I think the key, Rahul, is to do it right. And to do it right to me means to work hard, to think hard, to be innovative, never give up, and build a company, a team of your colleagues with a very high standard, a high value system, with high integrity, you know, I think this is what keeps our team together. One common driver, one common objective of our team is the end game. And the end game is to cure cancer, but not just do it in a sloppy fashion, but do it with the right standards. And there are no shortcuts in pursuing the right standards. There is no quick buck to make here. I have invested 28 years of my life in this company. And thank goodness that I didn't have the need to make a lot of money. In fact, I am net in the hole by a number of millions of dollars, net of my pay, because I could afford to do it. So I haven't done this for any other reason than meeting the objective of curing disease. Mm -hmm. That's the only objective. Great. Well, on that note, Garo, thanks so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you and wishing you and your colleagues continued success as you pursue this important mission at Agenis. Thank you very much, Rahul. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.